Welcome to Conversations for the Animals. I am Lisa Tynan, and I am joined today by the incredible Dr. <laughs> Hannah. So uh, full disclosure, when my colleagues were first talking about you, I thought Hannah was your first name. It is not. It's Dr. Amanda Hannah, which yes. I have... I'm thankful that I learned that before meeting you. The vet with two first names. The vet with yes. two first names. That's a perfect way to put it. Um, I'm so excited to have you today because we were we were just talking about this before uh, starting the episode. One of the things that's so great about this podcast is I get the opportunity to meet people who are doing unbelievable work in the animal welfare sphere. Um, and very few of our partners have not worked with Houston Spay Neuter with you directly, Fair enough. <laughs> which is which is saying a lot because we have a lot of partners. We have yeah. a lot of grant recipients. And I don't think I've ever met anybody who has a, a, a poor thing to say about you or your staff. So I'm right. yes. <laughs> note to self, Houston Spay Neuter is a really great vet, but we also get to work with you a lot, which is a privilege for us. Um, so I want to talk about a couple things today. First, obviously, we want to learn about you. But I also want to talk because working in the veterinary field within animal welfare is so different yeah. from working in what you would consider traditional private practice or mm -hmm. or any other type of veterinary medicine, really. And so yeah. I think you have to be a specific kind of person, kind of professional. But I also think it, you are in a unique position to really like cause a lot of change, which is which not everybody gets to do. So I'm I'm excited to talk a little bit about that. But first we're gonna start about you, about Dr. Right. Hannah. So yeah. what was were you one of those always wanted to be a vet since you were a little kid thing? Six years old. Six. Six years old. My mom That's will early. tell you six years old I wanted to be a vet. Um I did however take a bit of a non traditional route. Okay. I, um, I love non traditional. Yes, me too. Um so I was not a great student. I grew up in Canada. My family's all still there. Um, just north, a uh, small town buried just north of Toronto. Um, and so the Canadian school system is a, a little bit like the British system in that when you get to high school, kind of everybody takes the same classes. Okay. And then depending on how you do in those classes, you kind of get stratified into one of three kind of academic paths. Okay. And um, my academic path for math and science was not a great one based on my grade nine grades. Interesting. And so when you kind of go to your career counselor, you know, they look at your grades and and there is no SAT in Canada. Okay. And so you get into university based on what your high school grades are and that stratification. Oh, okay. And so they said, you know, look, you don't have the the spot to be able to go to university for science. Wow. So you can go to university for, you know, English or history or something like that. But if you want to go to university uh, for science to be a veterinarian, it's not going to happen. So wow. you can go to tech school. So they said, you know, you can focus on doing kind of the veterinary nursing side of things. And um, so I did. So okay. I went to Seneca College um, in um, King City in uh, Canada. And I did my two year. Um, the equivalent here would be an LVT okay. degree. So I was an LVT and I worked in research to start off with out of vet school. So okay. I worked at the University of Toronto and I worked there for, I think, two or three years and then transition from kind of an animal husbandry position to working with an investigator. Uh, his name was Chris Janus. He's marvelous. I consider him one of my mentors. Wow. And um, he um, worked uh, with mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. Wow. So I did um, behavioral um, testing on, on those mice. He got offered a position at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And we got along famously. And he said, look, why don't you come and work for a year at the, the clinic um, in Florida? 
This was like December in 2004 wow. and it's Canada in December. Yeah. And I was like, heck yeah, I'm Florida. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm there. And so I moved to Florida and okay. it was only supposed to be for a year. And then I met my now husband uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. He was doing his postdoc at the Mayo Clinic there as well. Wow. And so I did the one thing my mom told me not to do, which was marry an American. So whoops! So now I've been here <laughs> since uh, 2004. Okay. But um, but yeah. So that's kind of how I got to the states. Okay. And then um, he uh, was very supportive, and I had talked maybe about going back to school. Um, and he said, "Yeah, you should do this." Do and so while I was working, I was taking part time classes. And then he got offered a tenure track position at the University of Houston in 2008. Um, so he took that position, and when we came here, I went back to school full time. Wow. So graduated uh, from UH, go Cougs, uh, in um, 2011 and started at A&M um, in 2011 and graduated in 2015. I'm still so stuck on the fact that, and I guess this is normal for pretty much everywhere outside of the U.S., but that like someone can just sit and tell you like, nope, you're not going to be good at that. Yeah. And that can determine your entire future career path. It can. It can. But, you know, I actually think that was maybe one of the best things okay. that could Good. have happened. Good. Thank um, goodness. Yes. For me, because, um, you know, there's a, a whole, um, I think, slew of issues with with veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think many of us are familiar with that. The burnout in veterinary yep. medicine, the high suicide rate in, in veterinary medicine. And I think that when you take a population of overachievers who are perfectionists. <laughs> yes, type A. And, yep. Yeah, and you send them to vet school at the age of 21 or 22, your your brain is still developing into yeah. the human being that you will be. And so you graduate, you know, as a just fully formed human being. And now you're trying to learn medicine. Mm-hmm. You're trying to learn how to lead a team of people you are trying to learn how to deal with clients and run a business run (laughs) and and run a business or be an employee for a person who is running a business um so there are certain expectations there and i think it's absolutely um horrifying for a lot of these people they get i mean i think so many veterinarians go into veterinary medicine because they hate people yeah and so they just want reason well (laughs) well, it's not a good reason but also there's an animal attached to every carrier or leash yeah. that comes in your building, there's yeah. an owner, there's the the team of people you're working with. And so, you know, and I think that kind of cycles back a little bit to the the topic of animal welfare mm-hmm. and the, the lack of veterinarians in our profession yes. right now is because we are at this unsustainable point in veterinary medicine where we are graduating people who are not equipped to be veterinarians in today's society. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of a, a big part of what's going on with animal welfare is a lack of people who are able to be veterinarians for people who need it the most. For pe- Right, exactly. For the, for the populations most in need of that compassionate yeah. care. That was, your transition is perfect. Your segue <laughs> is perfect because... So you, your clinic is, is low cost, high volume. Yes. Yeah. So for, for the unfamiliar, what that means is what you see a lot more clients for less time and less money. 
How does that work? Yeah. So uh, especially so I would say that spay neuter is my bread and butter. Yes. And I'm doing anywhere between 35 and 45 surgeries a day. That's so um, many surgeries. It's so, it is so many <laughs> it's, surgeries. Although I will say time out. It's actually not a lot for you because we know you can do a lot more. Yes. In a lot less time. So yes. we'll get to that. But yes, Fair that's enough. a lot. Uh, so it, it is a lot, but it allows me to do uh, what I feel is a comfortable number that my staff can adequately care for. Right. We can give what I feel is the appropriate attention to each animal. And so they have a good surgical experience. Their owners or rescues have a good post-op experience. And then I can still transition to doing wellness um, or what I, what I need to do in the afternoon. So that's right. seeing sick animals, um, regular appointments, things like that. So you see surgeries in the morning and then everything else in the Typically, afternoon. Typically, yes. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the occasional, you know, emergency that comes in. That, you know, that's the joy of veterinary medicine is yeah. you never know what's walking in that door, whether it's a dog fight or... Uh, so, you know, a dog's lift open their incision or yeah. a kitty cat got hit by a car. You just never know what's coming in. You never know. Yeah. So that that's a typical day, right? Is, typical is day. That. But yes. you also do large scale events. So our last guest that we had on was, well, two guests ago. We had Mary Tipton, who yes. you work together a lot with uh, the do. Empty Shelter Project. Yes. And those are large scale events where you're seeing... Hundreds. Yeah. So typically at those events, we're doing anywhere between 350 animals, upwards of 500, right. um, depending on the location, the veterinarians and the, the volunteers that we can get. Um, yes. And that's a you know, that is a wonderful organization to be a part of. And I'm so happy um, with what we're doing there because we go into low income areas yeah. and um, and it affords people in that it, area to get their cats and dogs um, spayed and neutered, mm -hmm. microchip, rabies, um, distemper, parvo vaccine, or FERCP at no charge. Um, and it's just, and Amazing. and I have met so many fantastic people yep. um, through that organization. Vets from all over the country are coming in to do this on a regular That's basis awesome. now. Yeah, our next one is in A-Leaf on June 3rd. Now, do you find with the vets that are coming in, are these are you pulling in people who are already doing this sort of yes, animal welfare? So it's not you're not so much getting the private practice vets who want to take a break and come knock out some surgery. Right, right. And the, okay. the reason for that is we need somebody who can, you know, spay and 60 pound in heat pit bull in, you know, less than 15 minutes right. and have no complications. Right. Um, so not that private pre practice vets um, can't help because we have all the pre uh, surgery stuff, all the post-surgery stuff. Right. Um, so there's absolutely places for private practice veterinarians. Um, and some of them have gotten so skilled over the years that they can absolutely do surgery. But sure. typically we're calling in, you know, people who do high volume surgery on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's who's helping us with that. Because we try to have everybody done, you know, two, three PM so we can make sure everybody is recovering adequately before they go home. Right. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about you, you alluded to the the ongoing crisis in the veterinary field, mm -hmm. and it is it, it's a multitude of factors that contribute to that. It yeah. is the not being a full adult yet while you're going through what yeah. is arguably one of the hardest mm -hmm. uh, specialty universities in in existence. The right. attrition rate for vet students is higher than med students. I mean, people fail out of vet school and then fall back on becoming a human doctor. I mean, that's yes. <laughs> just so people understand how difficult it is. Um, are you finding that people are not willing to do the animal welfare type vet work? Are you find is it is it that 
what is it that keeps people from becoming interested in this field? Does it take it takes kind of a, a specific type of person that can handle a lot of heartbreak? Yeah. But all vets can do that to a certain extent. Yes, I concur. I think it comes from vet school. And I had a great experience at A&M. And I think that they made me a, a really good veterinarian. Yeah. But I think what vet school today, much like human medicine, it teaches you defensive medicine. So it teaches okay. you the gold standard of care. Okay. So when you know, you're know you at vet school and you know, people are coming in with cases where they're spending five, 10, 15, $40,000 yeah. on their animal, you are seeing a particular kind of medicine that is practiced. And right. that is what those clinicians are teaching you. This is the gold standard. This is what you should do. And there was an article that came out in JAVMA um, I, a few years ago, and they were talking about the spectrum of care instead mm -hmm. of the standard of care. And I really took that to heart because that's what I was kind of starting to practice on yeah. my own was this idea that Owning an animal is not for rich people. Right. And I grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of money. We loved our animals. Of course. We just couldn't afford the care for them that was offered to us at the time. Right. And so I think is vet when you are going through vet school and you are being taught this gold standard that, you know, this animal comes in with this, you have to do all of these diagnostic right. tests in order to help treat this animal. That's not the case. Right. You know, that yeah, is that ideal? Absolutely. Of course. But is that attainable for most people? No. And so for me to, to, you know, hear veterinarians, you know, lament about the fact that, okay, you know, and I get referrals from veterinarians all the time who will okay. say, hey, I have this, you know, dog with a bladder stone mm -hmm. and our clinic charges $1,800 for this. Yeah. These people can't afford that. What can you do? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's a sh these veterinarians have the skill set. They have the equipment. They can do this. But they're not able to, whether it's the corporatization and they can't, whether right. fi financially they can't do it, you know, whatever the case may be. And so you have an animal with an owner that loves it, that's trying to do the, the best that it can. Right. There's a solution and it's because of money. Right. That it's not, that you can't help this animal and this, own, this owned, loved animal can't stay with its owner. Right. And so for me, looking at the spectrum of care as opposed to the standard of care is where we need to be looking in veterinary medicine. You know, just because you only have $200, that doesn't mean I can't help you with your pan loop kitten. Right. Maybe I can't do everything I want to do, but I can help you. Right. Um, and so I think it's that that kind of approach to veterinary medicine, making it, you know, more of a community-based spectrum of care and not the standard of care. I think it's important to learn what the standard of care is so you right. can always offer it but I, I'm so sad at, you know, seeing patients that come to me and they've called 10 other clinics yeah. and gotten, you know, for them, outrageous quotes. I mean, these are people who are, you know, they're like choosing, do I, you know, pay rent or, or pay for my dog's foreign body surgery? Yeah. You know, and, and unfortunately, people are making that, that same choice with, with human medicine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, necessarily animal and, and veterinary medicine is going to fall a little bit by the wayside on yeah. that. And I get it. Of course. So it, you know, I think part of it is what we're taught in vet school okay. and how to approach things. So I think having that confidence to say, I can help you even if I don't have all these toys. Right. You know, like in vet school, you have all those toys and you yeah. get out into some of these really high end clinics. They have all the toys. Right. You know, but you don't always have to have all those toys to to help this animal that's in front of you. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. 
Um, I do think that, um, I think I got off topic. A no, bit you're there, still but, on topic. Okay. You are because <laughs> honestly, you know, and I've, uh, my, our producer and I were talking about this before, you know, I've, I spent a very little amount of time working in a vet clinic as, oh, okay. a, as a vet assistant. Yeah. Um, and then I worked in the staffing side of things. Um, but I, I remember presenting the, um, estimates mm-hmm. to yeah. the clients yeah. and that was, I hated it. Yes. That was one of the more uncomfortable moments for me because we and this was this was actually in College Station. And, you know, it was a, a clinic that saw all species mm-hmm. of animals. So we could have, you know, a duck in one room and a, a piglet in the other, which w- yeah. was very fun, admittedly. Um, but care, especially for, you know, more rare types of pets can be really expensive. And this yeah. was a very high standard of care type of vet yeah. clinic, but there were also college students coming in yeah. with their pets. And right. they, you're, you know, you're sort of taught when you're a pet owner to find the best vet you can find, the, yeah. the one that has the most clients and the fanciest yeah. equipment. And then you sit down with them and you have your estimate printed. And of course you have all the things that are optional. Yeah. And you're sitting face to face with someone and saying, if you're less of an owner, then you'll take these things off. Yeah. And that always made me really uncomfortable. You know, we would pre-anesthetic blood work is the typical thing that people suggest, but is optional. Right. And it's expensive. Yeah. It is not mandatory. Right. As you well know, you can do a very safe surgery without it. But there's some sense of guilt, I think, that is laid squarely at the feet of the owner to say, if you don't do this, you're not a good pet owner. Right. And it's unreasonable to expect really of anybody, but especially people who don't have that disposable income that they can spend on their pet. Yes. Which, oh, it made me so uncomfortable. Well, (laughs) it it does. And I think that you know, having a technician or a vet assistant distance the veterinarians mm-hmm. from that aspect of veterinary medicine, I think is part of the problem too. Really? Okay. I, I do because I think when I'm talking to somebody face to face about what I need to do with their animal, I need to be comfortable talking about money mm-hmm. with them. And I think, you know, we talk about like angry clients and stuff like that. If I have a client who's upset at me, I talk to them. Yeah. I don't want my reception or my assistant going to talk to them because often it's a miscommunication between them and I. And I can usually understand exactly where they're coming from. Yeah. Maybe they're upset because they do feel that guilt. Yeah. And then I can talk to them and say, look, it's OK that you don't have this money. Mm-hmm. Yes. In a perfect world, would we do this? And I have this conversation all the time. Yeah. Look, in a perfect world, this is we would do all of these things. Most people can't. And I can tell them, look, most people can't afford this. And mm-hmm. it's okay that you can't too. And they feel like she gets me. Yeah, She's not judging me for the fact that I don't have money. Yeah. And I think that for me, it's so important as veterinarians to understand that we're providing a transactional service mm-hmm. to these people. We're giving them something for their money. Right. We need to be able to talk to them about their money. And, and a lot, and some of it is just saying like, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay that you don't have it. This is what we can do. And you know what? That's a darn sight better than doing nothing. Yep. And so, like, for me, having that personal connection with your clients would help a lot of veterinarians um, to better navigate this system. But unfortunately, I think the corporatization of veterinary medicine takes that away. Yeah. Um, you know, we've gone from, like, the, you know, I, it's going to sound stupid, but, like, the James Harriet-ishness mm-hmm. of of um, veterinary medicine and we're going more towards the human side of medicine. And you know what? Most people are not happy with their human medicine interactions. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, (laughs) so like, 
And how do we accept? And and a lot of us have insurance, yep. right? Or it's like a necessity. We have to do you this. Have to we, have just, it. Yep. we just do it, you know. But then we're we're making the same kind of leap with veterinary medicine for animals, yeah. and people's pocketbooks can't catch up. No. Like it's just not, it's just not sustainable, especially in today's economy, for us to have only access to these beautiful, wonderful clinics, which are, yes, wonderful. They're doing amazing things. Yeah. They can do incredible things there, but that's awesome for those few people who can afford it, right. you know? And then like, you know, the ability to barter, like I had a lady who came in and, you know, she loved her cat, had a pyometra and she couldn't afford the whole surgery. She was like, look, I have $65, but I have chickens. Can I give you some eggs? And I was like, yeah. I love, I love eggs. eggs. Yeah, eggs oh are so expensive gosh. right now. Come on, bring them in. And, you know, like as a veterinarian I and a business owner who mm -hmm. likes to pay my staff a living wage, I can't afford to do that with every client. Of course. But I love the flexibility that I have that I can say, yes, I can work with you on that. That's or amazing. working with rescues, yep. working with, you know, groups like PetSet where we can we can work together mm -hmm. and solve this problem, whether it's, you know, the dude who has, you know, six um, unaltered pit bulls on the side of the road. But that homeless dude, those dogs give him purpose. Mm -hmm. We're not doing anybody a favor by taking those dogs away. Right. But can we make those dogs healthier and happier and make him compliant with, yep. you know, state and local laws? Yep. And for me, like that makes me super happy as a veterinarian, you know, like I'll, I, the joke at the clinic is I'll never drive a Ferrari, but I can generally sleep really well at night. That's, and, I mean, if, if that's what, you know, when you, when you end the day and you sit down and you say, yeah. I've accomplished what I wanted to accomplish today, right. which was I saved some lives. I helped some people and some animals like that. Yeah, absolutely. You can and close I, your eyes and sleep at night. Yeah. And I didn't hate the job while I was doing yeah. it. Like I, I have, I do some training for veterinarians in mm -hmm. surgery and stuff like that just to, you know, surgery is a tough thing to feel comfortable doing if you don't have any mentorship. Yeah. And so I love mentoring, you know, new veterinarians. And that's the biggest complaint I get is they're just, they're lost. They're swimming in this sea that they don't know how to navigate. Yeah. And I feel so bad for them because most of them want to, to do this. Most of them want to help their, in fact, all of them, everyone I've met yeah. wants to help, you know, that patient that's attached to that owner. But yeah. it's like they've they've been, you know, kicked out of vet school. Like, here you go. You're, yep. you're out now. Here's your shingle. <laughs> and and there's not there's, there's no nothing. ability to navigate the system and to say, like, how can I do this job that's fulfilling to me and do it in a way that I'm not in a toxic environment? Right. I'm not, you know, dying inside from compassion fatigue. Right. Uh, and that's just general practice. That right. doesn't <laughs> even talk about like shelter veterinarians right. and, you know, veterinarians who are running nonprofits and things. That's a whole other, you know, side of animal welfare yeah. when you're trying to. And, and that's, you know, we had talked about social media earlier yep. and, and, you know, how social media is a great tool for rescues and animal welfare and how it's also a devastating weapon yep. um, in animal welfare. And and I don't know how to fix that. I fix that myself <laughs> by getting rid of social media. That's so, such a good idea. <laughs> so that's gone and I don't yeah. miss it. But I see the devastation that yeah. that it can wreak on on other, you know, rescues and nonprofits and shelters and just we've lost any sense of kindness yes. um, on the internet when it comes to that kind of thing. Yes. I, I will say, you know, I, as being a social media professional for as long as I have, I, I wish I love my job, but also sometimes I wish yeah. that I could just not have to care about it. And, yeah. and one of the things that I've been seeing specifically in animal welfare, 
but across the board as well, is we've now that we've we- we've found ways to weaponize social media, yeah. right? We yeah. we we call people out publicly in in a in an effort to show how terrible they are and get people on their side. And I've seen people doing that to veterinarians, specifically oh, yeah. to low cost vets. And yeah. you know, I I understand a hundred percent being an owner mm-hmm. and being yes. upset about your animal because this is your child. Yeah. And and what I've seen is a scary trend of going online posting interactions even, you know, yeah. recording your interaction with a vet tech or a receptionist and saying, look at how awful they were to me. Well, you didn't show how awful you were to them before right. you turned your camera on. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's exactly it's a weaponization and it is driving people out of veterinary medicine. It's driving people out of animal welfare as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And now we it took us so long to hire a vet for our mobile unit mm-hmm. to find somebody who a can do what y'all do, which is yeah. the high volume, low cost and B that aren't scared off of working with so many pet owners yeah. every single day because yeah. one one slip up, quote unquote, because yes. very often it's not an actual mistake. And and that's it. Your career can be ruined. Your yeah. your emotional trauma can last forever. Yeah. And it is frightening to me to see that trend yeah. of Look, I understand if I'm a low cost vet, I still have to pay. Like you said, you still have to pay your staff. Yeah. Still have to pay for supplies. Yeah. Still have to pay your rent if you own a building. Yes. Like or right. you're, you're renting a building. So all of these things, you can't be free for everyone all the time. Right. Yes. And it, it's unsustainable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a frightening trend. And I, I hope that someday we figure out a way to yes. chill people out on the Internet. Me too. Well, um, and, that, and that goes back a little bit, I think, to communication. Yeah. Right. Like I definitely have bad reviews out there. You could go on Google and you can see them. Where are they? I'll yes, find them yep, and yell at them. They're there. Um, you know, but I, we are human beings, yep. right? And we work with biological animals. Right. Like it's not a math equation. It's not two plus two equals four, you know? And so what that means is you're, it's a dynamic process. Um, and, you know, shit can go sideways. It can right? go very sideways. And so, Absolutely. you know, and and I, you know, promise you that there are nights that I have gone to sleep crying over things that I wish hadn't have happened during the day. Of course. You know, but in my mind, if I say like, okay, I I try my best with every single animal mm-hmm. that ends up on my table. Like I, what I always joke is I try for every single person to be like, it's my mom. It's like my mom yeah. or my dad. So it's their animal. Uh, so it's not my animal. But it's my mom's dog or it's my dad's cat, you know, something along those lines. But sometimes things happen. But if you as a veterinarian can communicate with Mm -hmm. your client face to face and be fair and transparent and honest with them, most of the time, if they trust you, you can they understand what's going on and why it's happened or or whatnot. And, you know, there are lots of times I've I've had clients come in. Where I've said, look, I've not done this surgery before. Mm. I've not done it. I will try. You know, I can try for you because you have no other options right now. And so, but you need to know that in a perfect world, this would be done here and we would do this. And, 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 you know, I've not done it or I don't have the equipment, but I can try my best. And so if they know up front, like, okay, I don't have this experience or I don't necessarily, this is not ideal, but we don't have any other options they're usually okay. Yeah. You know, and, but again, it's, it's all about the communication Mm -hmm. about like me going out face to face and talking to them or talking to them on the phone. 
not sending my receptionist, not sending my technician. Does it take longer? It does. Yeah. But that means that there's that trust then where they say, you know, even if something does happen, like, look, doc, I know you tried your best. Right. You know, I took heartworms out of a dog um, and I told them, like, I've not done this Ugh. before and it worked and the dog's doing great Amazing. and he's going through heartworm treatment. But I was very upfront with the rescue and said, look, I've not done this before. So, you know, and they understood it. So I will say, so the the few times that I have had the opportunity to be in your building while, you know, on business hours, while things are happening. One thing that I have been impressed by is your staff. Mm. And it's not just, you know, that they are skilled technicians because that's fantastic. But everybody and this if anyone who works in the vet industry knows that this is rarity. Everybody's pretty happy. And that. I, I have a sense that some of that is because they don't feel the burden that you are placing on them, that they have they are the ones who have to deal with all the the terrible runoff that they know yeah. if something goes sideways, Dr. Hannah is going to come out yes. and she's going to be right there next to me while we deal with it. And again, having worked in a clinic where that was not the case. Yes, that's huge. Yeah, because. Our our blessed vet techs and vet assistants and receptionists are generally underpaid, wildly underappreciated. Absolutely. Yes. And do unbelievable work and get the brunt of the anger and yes. the and the drama of whatever is happening in a vet clinic. And I think having having a professional that has your back. Mm hmm. Whatever happens. And also, like you said, that is up front. You're, you're, there's no bluster here. There's no, oh, I, can, I can fix it. I've right, got this yeah. under control. Everyone's on the same page. We're going to do our best. Yes. And if it doesn't work, we did our best. Yes, exactly. I think that's huge. It is. And and I also think having been a vet tech yeah. for years before becoming a vet helped me to know that side of veterinary. I, yes. I was there. I have worked in, cl I worked in clinics for years. Um where I remember having to do that. And I remember how crappy it was. And, you know, I remember, you know, working for veterinarians who are, you know, making dinner plans while I'm, you know, <laughs> wrist deep in shit in, in a cage. So like, yeah. if if my staff needs help with laundry, I help with laundry. Yeah. If they, you know, if, if there's something that needs to be done and there's nobody else to do it, I'll do it. You know, like it's Amazing. not a... Yeah. It, what a concept, yes. right? <laughs> and so I feel like when I... Because they work their butts off mm -hmm. for me. And we work, you know, balls to the wall four days a week. Yep. And, you know, I think that they are okay doing that because they see me doing it beside mm -hmm. them. And and they all know I can't do it without them. No. Like, I always joke, like, I, I don't run the place. I just work there and I'm shackled to the tables, you know. So, like, I just go from table to table. And they are doing this incredibly intricate choreographed ballet yes. around me to make it so that I can do 45 surgeries in, you know, five hours. Yeah. And I couldn't do it without them. So Having witnessed that, that was my, <laughs> the first time I ever set foot in the clinic was during a team feral. Oh, event. yes. We have another one tomorrow oh, or Sunday. I Sunday. <laughs> they make me so happy. Um, and it was, I think that was the first time they had, y'all had broken a hundred. Oh, one day. yes. Okay. This was a while ago. Yeah. And I, I, I was with my coworker, Sarah, and she said, get a load of this. And we walked into the, the surgical suite where I think you have four tables. Is that right? Three or four tables? Well, we're in a new building oh, now. Oh, you're in a new building. Yes. Okay. So we're in a new building now. So uh, you should come and check I'm, out the new Now I need to come see the new one. Because <laughs> sure. before it was just this one room with yes. like three tables and a countertop and there were teams prepping. Yes. And you were just like, 
cut, 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 so, 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 cut, 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 just around in a circle. And I'm yes. sitting there thinking, like, there should be a documentary made <laughs> about this type of medicine because it is so different yeah. from what most people see when they walk into a vet clinic. Yes. But you're not suffering from any higher rate of post-surgical complications. Your animals. We have less. You we have few, less. Fewer even complications. better. Yes. I mean, yeah. to me, that says that there is a way forward in animal welfare where we are, you know, admittedly struggling right mm -hmm. now with access to veterinary care. Yeah. There is a way to do it that is affordable, that you can knock out a lot of stuff in one day people are still getting high quality care mm -hmm. and don't have to feel less than because they've brought their pet to a low right. cost clinic. Yeah. And then we, we are hitting these numbers that we need to be hitting to actually have an effect on the homelessness crisis yeah. that we're facing here in Houston. Yeah. We're going to do, we should do like a video, just a, one of those, what are they called? The hyperlapse oh, yes. of one of your spay and neuter days, because it, it really is worth seeing. Cause I think until you see, a room full of a hundred trapped feral cats. You don't, yeah. you can't really get a feeling for just how bad the problem is yeah. and how few people there are out there actively trying to do something about it. Well, and, and I think, you know, that the amazing thing to me is when I first started this whole journey, I was, you know, concerned, um, about whether or not I could make it work. Yeah, <laughs> and there's now, always that. <laughs> I mean, I could do a team fail event where I do on, on a, generally 110 cats yeah. in a day. I could do that every single weekend yeah. and not feel like I'm making a dent. Which is which is so yes. scary. It is, it is, yeah. That, it's, that it feels that insurmountable. And I will say that, and it leads me to kind of my last question. It, it doesn't feel like there are enough organizations or veterinarians who are focusing on that specific on just population control mm -hmm. and like you obviously you do so much more than that we send so many of our emergency cases sure. to you mm -hmm. but you know we when we see empty shelter project when we see these big events with team feral why aren't there more groups that focus on this and, and what do you see as like a viable way forward so that we can get more vets on board yeah that we can get more organizations who are focusing on spay neuter yeah on herd health yes yeah i mean i think it's gonna change um for sure it's gonna change in it needs to change in vet school like okay. and they're getting better now but you know there's a shelter rotation in most yep. vet school programs now so people are at least getting exposed that this is a viable option for sure. you but it's also changing um you know how we shelter animals and just the approach towards that. So, you know, if we're in communities where, again, you know, if you are trying to make sure that all your citizens in your community have electricity mm -hmm. and clean water, it it is unimaginable to think, you know, oh, but also like we have to spend all this money on, you know, animal welfare. Right. Like we're, we're in, we're in this country, there's triage mm -hmm. going on right now. In, yeah. And I mean, Houston is huge and we have that, that, you know, trifecta of issues that allow for giant population, which is, you know, socioeconomic conditions, mm -hmm. cultural conditions where there's a lot of um, cultural uh, misunderstandings, I think about spay and neuter and, mm -hmm. and what it is. Um, and, and then also climate, right? Yeah. Like Canada, we, we don't have this issue. You have winter. <laughs> yes, exactly. So like animals aren't cycling yearly, yeah. or if there's a, a litter of kittens born late, they generally don't survive right. here. They can cycle year round. They can have puppies and kittens that survive year round. Right. Um, so it's this kind of horrible 
mix of things. Um, and then also you have the corporatization of veterinary medicine where corporation, there's not money in, in low cost no. medicine necessarily. Um, and so I think when you have that, I mean, why would people right. go into it? You know, right. like most shelters aren't offering a $50,000 signing bonus yeah. to come and work for them, but a lot of clinics are. Wow. And, and so as a new, if a new grad, you're graduating like I did with $200,000 in student loans. Huh. Like, that what, hurts. yeah, <laughs> where, where are you going to go? Yeah. You know, and so I, I think it's just, and also then you've also been taught, I have to have this standard of care. Right. And so you could go to this beautiful, shiny clinic where you get a $50,000 signing bonus, or you could go to the shelter where they have like five drugs and you can make a big difference, yeah. but you have no mentorship. Yeah. And so for a lot of veterinarians, I think it's kind of an easy choice to understand why they they went that route instead of other routes. And then mm -hmm. once you're in it, it's hard to get out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I love being able to um, do externships with vet students. And yeah. I've had a few of them where they come in, they'll spend two or three weeks with me and they can see like, man, this is kind of cool. Like I can practice good. Like I have clients who drive in in really, really nice cars yep. who want everything, um, but they they like me as a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. And so they're coming to me as a veterinarian and I can offer gold standard of care and they'll take it. Right. And that's great. Right. Um, but I can also see the next client who took a, you know, public transit mm -hmm. with his German shepherd, you know, to get spayed. Right. And I can help him too. Yeah. You know, and, and being able to do that, but recognizing that that is an option. And I think that's not, it's just not well known with newer grads coming out that that is an option. You can do yeah. this. You don't have to do corporate or shelter or work. It's mm -hmm. not, it doesn't have to be just one of those options. And so I think, at, you know, changing what young veterinarians see mm -hmm. when they're in vet school and when they get out is what we need to do okay. in order to get it. And then social media, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it's, it is such an awful thing for veterinarians. Yeah. And I think changing, you know, it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face yep. when you, you know, kick a, a vet while they're having a bad moment. So they leave. Well, then you've taken that resource out exactly for anything. So, yeah, I, I unfortunately, I think more the flow of vets is going out of animal welfare yeah. and into private practice rather than the other way around. So, yes. um, well, that, and it's valuable information for us to know, you know, a, a, an organization like Houston Pets at where we're very big picture taking the step back since we aren't a rescue and being mm -hmm. able to see, okay, well, maybe we need to start focusing our resources on the vet schools and saying, yeah. let's, let's fund a seminar. Let's get these students or a field trip. Let's mm -hmm. have them come and attend an uh, empty shelter project day where they can see how grateful the owners are, yeah. how satisfied at the end of the day, the staff and the volunteers are yeah. and the impact that just one day of work mm -hmm. can have which, you know, it's not, like you said, it's not what they're being taught. But man, once you see it, there's yeah. no going back. And it's it's so fun and gratifying yeah. and soul fulfilling. And I love so, like, I am so sad when I talk to veterinarians who hate their job. Ugh. Because yeah. I think, like, you you can love what you, you do so much. <laughs> like, I promise you there there's something out, like, you can love what you do so much. Yeah. And I think because all they've been shown is this little box. Yeah. You know, and and I feel so bad for them because there's so much out there they can do and there is a huge impact they can make. And it's just, you know, but I, th I think it is probably a little terrifying for them to oh, look sure. outside what they know. 
I'm sure. Well, yeah. the good news is there are still so many wonderful vets who oh, work yes. in this sphere. Absolutely. And, and they are compassionate and they are maybe having some compassion fatigue, but they're they're pushing through. And as the the pet owners and the rescues, it's our job to support y'all in that because we can't be adding to the problem. That's just that's too ridiculous to me that that, you know, as fellow animal welfare advocates, we would be doing anything but propping up our veterinary uh, yeah. cohort. So that's a, a warning to all of our partners. Be nice to your vets because we need them. <laughs> because if we lose any more of y'all, we are done for. That's There's just no way forward without high yeah. volume, low cost with community medicine. I mean, it's yeah. That's it. That's yeah. that's our kind of our biggest line of defense against this. So Yeah, absolutely. To your team and to everybody that you work with, thank you. I mean we My pleasure. We My are pleasure. So, we're so happy that we have, you know, we have a, a, a ton a ton, that's an exaggeration. We have a few amazing veterinary partners that we know that we can count on when yes. we get those phone calls. Those the people who come to us who have run out of options. Yeah. That we know we can call up. We can call up y'all. We can call up veterinary urgent care. We can call up Safe Haven. We can say, yes. hey, yep. we'll pay for it. Can you do it? Yes. And, um, you know, it's a Band-Aid. Admittedly, it's a Band-Aid until we figure out how we can provide this service to more people so that it is yeah. affordable and accessible. But as long as we can keep doing it, we're going to keep doing it. Well, and I think it's groups like yours that show that there is an there is an option. There's a bridging yes. between what you know what people can afford and what veterinarians need to sus to sustain a business, and that it is you know a foundation that can work and that can be successful. Mm -hmm. And you know donors who got you know who are lucky you know mm -hmm. they're in a financial position that they can donate. They're you know they. It may not, you know, $150 that they donate to, to this one case is not a lot for them. But, you know, for that family to to keep that animal with them or to mm -hmm. make that animal healthy or that, you know, homeless person. And that is that dog is literally their, the only yeah. reason they're alive. That is such a huge difference in that person's life, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that I'm lucky because I get to see that, yes. you know, like face to face. I get to meet that animal and I get to meet that person and I get to, to work with them one on one. So I'm lucky in that I get to see that side of things. But we couldn't do that without funding yeah. from gr groups like yours. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that is a, a wonderful place for you guys to to be in mm -hmm. that you can you are the the effector of change boots on the ground yeah. you know like this this homeless person can now be okay yep because their dog is okay yep. you know or this you know lady who you know loves her cat and it it had an infected you mm -hmm. know pio which is such an easy surgery yep. and then it, it goes home and she's happy again you know so i think that you know you guys helping marginalized groups mm -hmm. um makes a, a huge difference to, to that. And I see it. I see it to those owners. Yes. Yeah. We love it. We, we love a good collaboration for yes. the good of the people and for the good of their pets. I, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to join us today on your, on your like one day off because <laughs> I know y'all work like crazy. Um, I, I think we're, we're lucky that we have partnerships like this and I hope that more people look to find these types of collaborations and, and so that we are affecting change in these populations who just have nobody else looking out for them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where we start to really make progress in Houston, but 
beyond everywhere not we're not the only place who's suffering from very this animal true. welfare crisis very so true yes. hopefully some people take this and and run with it because it's it feels it feels real good to help people and it feels real good to help their pets so absolutely um, again thank you dr hannah thank you for coming. It's been so fun this has been yet another episode of conversations for the animals we will see you next time mm-hmm.